Welcome to Displaced. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I am Grant Gordon. And on today, we have got a very, very special guest, Mandy Patankin, who is a bit of a hero of mine. I'm obsessed by watching Homeland. And today, we're going to talk to him a bit about Homeland, but mainly about the refugee crisis because he is now an IRC ambassador. It's amazing. This is a dual-headed person who is both the acting CIA director and the national security advisor in Homeland and also one of the strongest voices on refugees right now. He spent quite a lot of time visiting our programs in Uganda, in Lesvos, in Greece. And he's also worked here in the US, met quite a lot of our refugees that we've resettled in the United States. And one of the things that I think we'll get into with Mandy is the question of how you actually make political change happen. How do you communicate about the refugee crisis? How you actually empathize? I am uh, actually really excited to to chat with Mandy um, and think through how you actually generate messages that uh, persuade people to care. Um, I kind of coming from the wonkier data driven side, I'm always kind of like have my heartstrings pulled by the top line statistics of the day, understanding of impact and evidence. And yeah, I'm hoping that after this, you'll actually be a better at this podcast and stop going on about all those statistics. Well, there's real fun- <laughs> Never. There's real fundamental questions about how do you actually change people's minds? How do you impress on people? Uh, I'm excited to ch- actually bring in some of the literature that considers how you get people to care and imagine displacement crises and things of that magnitude. You're determined to make this boring, aren't you? We're talking Mandy Patanka. It's going to be fun. <laughs> So if you've never heard of Mandy Patinkin, he is an actor, a musician, and advocate for refugees. He has not only been in Homeland, where you might know him from, but he has had a illustrative career on Broadway and in other TV shows, and actually has a new CD coming out. Um, I am very excited to have Mandy Patinkin. Ravi is too. We are on the edges of our seats. Uh, here's Mandy Patinkin. Mandy Patankin, welcome to Displaced. Um, you've just come back from Uganda, haven't you? Yes, I have. What, can you just tell us what you're doing there? Well, uh, for the past three years, uh, when I finish filming Homeland, a day or two later, sometimes literally the next day, I get on the first plane uh, with the International Rescue Committee and visit uh, somewhere in the world where the refugee crisis is present and uh, in need of attention and uh, in need of people that can share their stories and be a voice for the voiceless. So the first year in 2015, I went to Lesvos and uh, witnessed uh, the situation there. Um, and uh, when it was the process was moving at some points, I think uh, 5,000 people a day or more through the system. Um, and then uh, I came back the next year, 2016, with my wife, back to Lesvos, and then did a little more of a tour into uh uh, Serbia and the Balkan route, Hungarian border. This year, I finished filming in Budapest, and uh, then we went immediately. My wife and my oldest son, Isaac, and myself uh, joined the International Rescue Committee, as I do every year, and we went to Uganda, which was the polar opposite of last year's experience. The first year, the system was still working. March uh, 2016, the EU doors shut tight. And uh, there were no more options or possibilities for these most vulnerable among us who are caught in conflict and are truly the victims and who profoundly remind me of my ancestors who came to this country when this country's arms were wide open as most of our listeners share the same story with I do. We wouldn't be here or we wouldn't be listening were it not for the generosity of the United States back then. 
when our parents came and our grandparents. So then we went to Uganda where the story is quite different than in the EU right now, which is somewhat in limbo and a temporary situation is becoming permanent in the EU. But Uganda is somewhat the polar opposite. It is a country of welcome, not walls. It is a country that is leading the the pact uh, of humanity in terms of moral, ethical behavior and uh, doing the right thing for our fellow human beings. What is that? First of all, they also were refugees not that long ago in their own internal conflict in Uganda and knocked on their neighbor's door in South Sudan uh, and were welcomed by them. And my grandpa Max, my grandpa Max who came to America, uh, fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe in the uh, late 1800s, uh, had a saying in Yiddish that was passed along in the family. And the saying in Yiddish is, which means the wheel is always turning. So if you're at the top of the wheel, you'll get to the bottom and then it'll keep going and it's a fluid system. And so, but you will be at the bottom at some point. And therefore the old story, if when someone is knocking for help, and uh, desperate for welcome. If you're not there to open the door and welcome them, no one will be there when you need somebody to welcome you. It's amazing to think about historically and contrast welcome and open doors in the American context to people who are fleeing pogroms and to refugees. We've always been kind of a light and to now and kind of a moment of darkness. Think about Uganda as the foil to that and as the place that is actually kind of one of the stalwarts in mm. opening their doors um, and, and that kind of arc of a difference. And so in Uganda, one of the things that you're pointing to is they host a massive number of refugees, an estimated 1.4 million, going many up, of which are South Sudan and yes, going up. Going up to 1.8 by the end of the year. And, and they allow them the rights to work as well, don't they? This is the freedom, crucial thing. Freedom in the country to move around freely. So, yeah. yeah, first, they haven't closed their borders, like you're pointing out, right. to the EU. So if you're South Sudanese, you can cross the border and go into Uganda. Second, they also give them land and plots to start a new life. And third, they allow their children to attend schools. Yes. And so it's a totally different system. And the nationals mix with the refugees so that they incorporate as one. Much higher levels of integration. So. When you went to Uganda, how did the conceptions you have of what the refugee crisis there would look like uh, compare to what you actually saw? I didn't have a conception. I had only been to Cape Town, South Africa, which is nothing like the rest of Africa. And um, I had no idea what I would encounter other than I did know I was going to a system that was welcoming refugees and um, taking care of them and doing the moral, ethical appropriate human behavior to their fellow man and woman. Um, so I was very moved to see it in action. Uh, the elders of the community uh, give their land to the government and to the refugees for nothing. They ask nothing in return. Why? Because they were refugees. They, were in, they had to knock on South Sudan's door uh, for sanctuary and safety. So it's an extraordinary system in full operation. When you drive the two hours from Arua to get to the um, border, or two or three hours uh, either to Mvepi, where there are 130,000 refugees of the 1.4 million that are flooding into Uganda right now, or Bidi Bidi, where there are 290,000 refugees, you pass these uh, square homes, little square huts made of uh, dried red brick that they make themselves, and uh, then they mud over and thatched roofs. 
The refugee camps that are a little further along, like in Bitty Bitty, I'd say quite a good percentage of it uh, that the UNHCR temporary tents have disappeared, and their huts are there like Lillian Dawa, who uh, is a beautiful, extraordinary woman who was a, a social worker in South Sudan, had two children, uh, has two children, uh, Harmony and Destiny. When she left in 2016, she witnessed her husband was tied to a tree and murdered, uh, shot, uh, and uh, then a bomb went off. And her son, six-year-old little boy, Harmony, disappeared. Uh, so in a complete state of shock, mm -hmm. she fled with her daughter, uh, Destiny, little girl, made it to the Ugandan border, was welcomed, uh, brought into the women's uh, center for um, gender-based violence and taken care of given some food and comfort, rescue medication for the children and herself. And then through the system of International Rescue Committee and the other NGOs there, they found a woman who had found her son after the bomb went off and found Harmony, reunited them. And then now uh, she met another gentleman who became the father of her child to be born any day now. And she showed us around her plot of land given to her by the Ugandan government as every refugee gets their own plot of land. And uh, the four homes, uh, structures that she built, uh, one uh, had a bit of a termite problem, so she had to build another one right after it. It happens. Uh, it happens. And it happens upstate New York too, <laughs> trust me. And, uh, and um, she built them with her own hands. Uh, this tiny little lady who's uh, extraordinary force uh, said to my wife when we met in her beautiful hut, and so moving to be in her home, um, my wife said, this wouldn't happen probably if the women ruled the world. And uh, Lillian simply said, amen. And let me just take you also back to, to Lesvos, because yeah. you've been there twice, as you said. Um, and I think yeah. I, I went in 2015, uh, and I was really struck at the time that this was a bunch of people who were actually very optimistic and happy. They felt they'd almost managed to get through to Greece and felt optimistic about their prospects. And they were often only staying for one or two or three days in Lesvos before moving on. Whereas you go there now, and although the numbers have gone down, there's only probably about 100 coming in a week, they're basically interned on the island and are stuck and are, and are not let let out. Indefinitely. And, yeah, indefinitely. And, and you saw that transition, didn't you, yes. between 2015 and 2016? Yes. I'm interested in... in what you made of the sort of stories and the people that you, you, you came across? Well, there were, I think, at some point, five or 8,000 people coming through a day at certain times, uh, many people losing their lives in, in the mm -hmm. sea. And um, I went, at the time I got there, uh, the International Rescue Committee took me up to a place called Windy Point. It was the closest point where, uh, closest point to Turkey, where the refugees mm -hmm. uh, and Greece, uh, meaning the least amount of time on the sea that could, uh, that was taking many lives. And, um, it was astounding when I was there initially because IRC and the Greek government officials that were on Lesvos made arrangements with a beautiful family uh, who had uh, political connections in the area to acquire this piece of land at Windy Point on, on, a, on a resort island. And they immediately brought in a city, 
They built a city overnight to handle approximately 5,000-plus people a day coming in. That's what they were expecting and the continuation of it uh, before March 2016 when the EU shut the doors. I, I, you know, They brought in tons of gravel, put in showers, uh, toilet facilities, shower facilities. UNHCR had all of these extremely strong tents that were re- really some of the better structures I'd seen that I think could easily last a year. Um, and, you know, for women's centers, for child centers, for family centers, so that everyone could be processed. The extraordinary thing as we were meeting a boat that was coming up on the beach, one that obviously made it successfully, they jump off the boat, grateful to be alive, and they are immediately, everyone has a cell phone. They know exactly where they're going. They know exactly where the registration center is. They know the island as though they've lived there their whole lives. Imagine these people have just, you know, fled their own homeland, made treacherous journeys through mountains and 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 rivers and snow and death, death, death everywhere. And uh, and they jump off this boat, know exactly where to go, where the IRC is registering people, what to do, how to get to the health centers, and how to move quickly to the ferries to take you to the mainland, to take you to the trains, to take you to Germany, where everyone was heading. And and that process, I met different architects and people that work for the IRC that were all in the emergency system that get there, arrive, and set up a city overnight. This young woman was the acquisitions person. I forget her name, forgive me, but uh, she fascinated me. And I said, uh, I said, acquisition, like what? Well, like everything. She said, how much gravel you need for for the latrines and for the showers and for the toilets and uh, the tents that are needed, the diapers for the babies, uh, sanitary napkins for women, everything you can imagine that is uh, life-sustaining necessities. And I said, wow. And she was, I don't even think she was 30. I think she was, you know, mid mid to late 20s. I said, well, what, what were you doing? How, how do you, wh- who are you? You know, <laughs> what were you doing before you got here? She said, I was running a luggage shop in Vail, Colorado. I said, oh, God, I'd want to get away from there too. I said, but, but, but how do you know how to do this? How do you know? I mean, how do you bring it in? By plane, by ship, by Boat by car, she in, said. In the luggage, oh, yeah. And she said, oh, no, in the luggage. She said all of those ways. She said, I just know how to get things. Mm-hmm. The, a few of the strings that I want to pull on it speak to the way that humanitarian response has changed. You think about thirty years ago uh, with major refugee crises. They're happening in an era with without the internet, without cell phones. Many of our colleagues who we talk with were doing humanitarian response before there were satellite phones. Somebody would literally go to a place in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, wherever the response was at the time, and you would kind of say goodbye to them and they would go there to do work. And you can talk to colleagues who, once the fax machine was set up, the whole structure of humanitarian response changed because you allowed communication between uh, different organizations, different responders. And now you're at a point where the individuals who are arriving in large part in many parts of uh, the world have cell phones. One of the things that the IRC works on is refugee info. It is an app specifically constructed for when refugees arrive to know where services are. It's structured so that they can provide feedback on services. It's like a Yelp, such that when they do, they know what happens. And you see the kind of increase in technological sophistication. It allows for a totally different type of response um, that has really shaped the way that the entire landscape looks mm. at this point. I, I hear you, and uh, and and also I must I take my hat off to every member 
of uh, the IRC that I met who, you know, very few were over 30 and every single one of them could run the world uh, and run circles around people who are acting like they're running the world um, or considering it. Um, but they're just unbelievably capable and that's why I wanted my 35-year-old uh, firstborn son to come with me this time to Uganda. But I want to go a little before Uganda and take you back to the first trip to Lesbos that mm. you were talking about, where I went to Karatepe. And um, the uh, vice president of the EU, EU, the first few days we were there, was meeting with the, I think, the president of Turkey to work out uh, an EU deal because they were taking the brunt. I think they have just over 2 million uh, in Turkey right now, I think Syrian refugees mm-hmm. in Turkey, among other you know large numbers in other countries like Jordan and Lebanon and uh, other places that are taking tremendous amounts of people. Uh, do I have that right? Indeed. And the EU-Turkey deal was uh, a really controversial pact because yeah. basically it was uh, an agreement by which Europe would uh, send back refugees who are coming from Turkey and also increase some of the securities in response for free visas for Turkish citizens to come to the European Union, as well as a set of other financial incentives. And from a humanitarian angle, this uh, shot at um, undermined the very principles of opening doors, of not forcing people back to where they came from, where they may to die, t- t- uh, you know, undergo deep threats. Um, and like so the Jews on the St. Louis. It's it's. You know, you're starting to see very similar things like this. And so the mm-hmm. EU-Turkey deal was critiqued so much, actually, that there was an interesting moment where Doctors Without Borders, another major humanitarian organization, decided to stop taking funding from the European Union mm. because they thought the deal was so controversial that they did not want the funding from mm-hmm. the commission uh, for response. Yeah, so the corruption that then was very evident to me that goes on, and I'm not saying by who or exactly how, but uh, – all of a sudden, all the boats stopped coming from Turkey to Lesbos. So for two days, there was no one arriving. And I'm told that there were 5,000 arriving a day up until the day we got there. Huh. How did this happen? All these smugglers just stopped because they're in the cahoots with the government. And uh, supposedly, maybe I'm wrong, but they got to be in cahoots with somebody because it stopped on a dime when the vice president of the EU came over and for, uh, for show. So the deal is done. And it's the day we're leaving, and all of a sudden we're on the shore uh, on the day we're ready to leave, and there's like seven, eight, nine boats coming in. All of a sudden the doors are open again, and we greet these boats. At that time, Karatepe, which I was told, I think it was about capacity of about 4,500 is originally what they had. There were about 60,000 total in Greece. Um, There were temporary tents, um, dirt roads. Simple conditions, but I was also told it's considered like the four seasons of, of refugee settlements. Didn't look that way to me, but but the camp changed in 2016 when I went back with my wife. Karatepe, all of a sudden, it looked like Disneyland had come in. The roads were sort of paved. All of a sudden, there were containers that you know were white, and they all had heat pumps in them. Uh, it was just incredible. There were there were up to I think it's up to fifty four hundred approximately residents there in a forty five hundred dollar forty five hundred space capacity. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so they're way pushed, but it was as good as you could wish for. Cooking centers and women's centers and everything that would be needed. But the the sad part about it is it's not a temporary situation at the moment. Now it's turning into a long-term, possibly permanent situation. Yeah. And that's where the whole ballgame changes in terms of healthcare, education, um, 
everything, women's gender, violence issues, uh, all that's incorporated in the camps. And it just reveals that's one of the sad truths about so many uh, crises today. It's not a temporary situation. It's a protracted crisis where people end up stuck and actually unable to move, literally uh, detained in a single place. One of the things that I found the most uh, difficult to look at was uh, the situation of unaccompanied children. And I can remember them in in basically a cage, a, a very small space, and loads of unaccompanied minors were there. And I don't know whether you, you came across that situation. You're- well, we went to one place on Lesvos, which was particularly for young boys that were unaccompanied and had no one else. And it was an extraordinary man, a Greek gentleman, and the Greek people were incredibly generous. I, I just thought at that time, I thought they were the teachers of the world in terms of how to uh, how to respond to human beings in crisis. And this is all at a time when the fear-mongering in our country was going sky high and the rhetoric to ban people and, and the bans that are going on in the Supreme Court and, uh, and, and this horrible, horrible rhetoric of fear, whereupon I uh, launched into a little mini PhD course on the vetting process using my contacts uh, through IRC and individuals that I got to know uh, that were at the highest uh, places in the intelligence community through my relationship with uh, Homeland, Homeland, the television series I do. And this was extraordinary because I just learned some simple facts that can't be repeated enough. And I ask everyone who has a vote to please pay attention to these words I'm about to recite for the umpteenth time, and I'll recite them till I die. Uh, and that is that um, since 1970 in the United States, not a single terrorist incident has taken place by a refugee. The way that uh, the system works, I believe it's nine different locations around the world that the UNHCR has, that if you are an individual or a family and you want to see if you can get sanctuary and a visa uh, to begin this process, first you have to pass that UNHCR screening. When, if and when you do pass that screening, then you, for the United States, you launch into a two-year process, a two-year vetting process that couldn't be more rigorous. And the United States vetting process is known as the gold standard of vetting. Could it use improvement? Of course, everything could use improvement. But don't forget, not a single terrorist incident has taken place by a refugee coming into the United States since 1970. In Europe, it's a very different story, and that's where you need global cooperation and getting their system better. And our intelligence community, people I've spoken to, are more than ready to help and 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 try to do the most they can. But when you have – and so let's just get back to the point for a second. Now you have politicians ginning up fear. And what do they tell you? You need to be afraid of these other people. And you need to be terrified of them, that they're going to cause you harm. And if you vote for me, I'll keep you safe. And it's just nothing but falsehoods. Because the truth is, refugees, like all of our grandparents listening here, our ancestors, some parents in some cases, are the fabric of this country that make this country great. And they are the safest citizens in the United States of America. There's there's a there's an amazing uh, statistic that was put up by the Cato Institute, which is a right leaning think tank in D.C., where they did an analysis of exactly what you're talking about, and they came up with the conclusion that the chance of being an American murdered by a terrorist act caused by a refugee is one in three point six four billion, while the chance of being murdered in an attack committed by an illegal immigrant is one in ten point nine billion. And by contrast, the chance of being murdered by a tourist on a B visa, which is one of the most common ways that outsiders come in to just visit, you know, for two weeks, is 
one in 3.9 million. It just gives you an ex- mm. a sense of how vast. Mm. Uh, and, and these numbers, at the end of the day, don't have any weight compared to being with these children and So you've spent families. time with them, haven't you? You've, you've visited our U.S. programs, Resettling Refugees Here, and you've got to know some of the families. Yes, there's a community in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I live in New York City, and that's a, a key settlement area for Syrian families. And we met a family. Uh, they prefer that I not mention their name. Um, and we invited them to our home in New York. Uh, they hadn't. This man was a lawyer who was high up in his profession. Um, he drives a delivery truck you know, for a restaurant, and it's very demeaning, but he does the best he can. His uh, daughter is going to be going to medical school not too, not too far away. Uh, the other kids are doing great. Uh, they've come to the city. We took them to a poetry slam, the uh, older kids and the dad, and uh, we took them out to dinner. The father said to me when we were at dinner, in English, because he goes to class every day learning English, and, uh, and he said, you know, we used to go out at least once a week in Syria and have a meal like this. This is the first time, as a tear was dripping down his cheek, that we've been out to a restaurant with any members of our family in five years. Mm. The thing that nobody knows about refugees is that they also love poetry slams. <laughs> yeah, they love poetry slams. These kids, and we and we took them to, um, oh, oh, what's the big thing in New York on the, you know, that big market uh, in Chelsea Piers. Not Chelsea Piers. Chelsea no, Market. Chelsea, Chelsea market. market. Thank mm-hmm. you, Chelsea Market. Well, they went crazy because they have all the spices out there just like in, in uh, Middle Eastern countries. Yeah. And, and they, were, they felt like they were home. So you're throwing yourself into this issue and, and campaigning really hard. I'm just interested in uh, what you hope to achieve. And, and Grant and I spend most of our time trying to write very boring project proposals where we have to put together a theory of change. It has to show how our actions will lead to other actions that will lead ultimately to an outcome. And I'm just interested in your sense of your theory of change in getting involved in this issue. We can also send you these reports if you would like. Sure, sure. I'd love to read them. <laughs> um, I... I, I Look, I got involved. People say to me, why do you go uh, to visit a refugee crisis center after shooting Homeland, uh, as Shakespeare said, a mirror up to nature of, of a burning world around us, a world that is so fractured and, and, and in trouble? And, and our shows are a dramatized version of that, that really, you know, half the people are trying to get away from their cell phones, get away from the news, just escape reality. Why? And and, and so we're exhausted. I'm not complaining about it, but 14 hours a day of, of living in a fictional world, you know, uh, based on the real world. And so why do I go to this place? To reconnect, to connect and reconnect to reality and to learn why I'm alive and how to breathe because of what these people have been through to witness their resiliency, teaches you not on a temporary basis not to complain, but on a permanent basis. You can be through some, you can go through some personal tragedy where your kid gets sick and you're all praying that you know the fever breaks, and nothing bad happens, and you get and you say, and I'll do anything. I won't, I won't be, I won't fight with anybody. I won't worry. I won't be greedy. I won't do any of those things that I wasted half the past year doing. Just make my kid healthy. And then the kid's healthy. And a couple hours later, you're right back at the same stupid game. And this doesn't happen when you work with refugees. Uh, you, you said something interesting there about reconnecting with, with humanity, I think. Yes. It, it raises this question about empathy for me, which is mm. it, it probably stock in trade for you. You must spend all your time as an actor trying to put yourself in the shoes of other people. I'm only interested in people's behavior. I'm not interested in the statistics. 
Right. Well, then my corner is doing you poorly in this yeah, conversation. That's okay, but I'm interested in your behavior while you're figuring out your statistics. I'm interested in what it does to you, and I'm actually interested in how it probably drives you insane when you have the actual statistics in front of you and you mirror that up to human beings. But th- this is, I think, maybe what Ravi's getting at that I grapple with all the time, right? We are essentially policy wonks trying to generate solutions for refugees at scale. And 65 million refugees or displaced people, 22 million refugees. You can go through the numbers and they're mind-numbing, but... Mind-numbing is the word, actually. Because it literally... In a a terrible way, right? And this is what you're saying, which is you need to be able to empathize with individuals Mm. to really understand what's going on. And it's it's a challenge to figure out what's the right angle. How do you balance these? How do you think about... It's not a challenge when you're there. When you look at the resiliency in these women's faces who have been raped, tortured, scarred by machetes, who have, who have received more gender-based violence than you can even imagine or read about. And yet, they get through it. They play drums. They dance in, in, in the building, in the street. And then they sit there and give each other testimony of what they've been through. And they recover and they build homes with their own hands. They walk two hours every morning, take their kids to school because they want their kid educated, and walk two hours back. They build women's uh, nutrition center, uh, women's birthing centers. 1,400 babies have already been born in Bitty Bitty since October of 2016. Every baby and every mother, fine. They, their force of life and resiliency and rejuvenation and believing that we are all here for just a blink of an eye and and you waste it you don't get it you don't get to you don't get any of the wasted moments back you only get from now till it's over it is so inspiring their their strength and courage that they teach me how to live and breathe and that's where i go to recover from whatever i'm tired with in life they awaken me and it is simply the moral, ethical, right thing to do to take care of your fellow man, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's in every religion. It's in every culture. And what's the alternative? To send someone back to the conflict to die, which happens all the time. And then you have to remember that these people didn't ask or make the conflict. They are the victims. They're on the run. They're desperately trying to survive and save themselves and their children. And I think in Uganda, 85% are women and children. And, and they don't have the power to stop the cause of the refugee crisis. What's the cause? The conflict. Who does have the power? The governments and the elected officials. Who else has the power? Everyone listening to this podcast anywhere in the world. Why? Because you have a vote, an influence, and a voice. And if your leaders in your country or at home or wherever you are are not mirroring and matching your moral, ethical fabric and nature of your being, then you find someone, your job as a human being is to find someone interested in running for public office who's supposed to be interested in taking care of humanity and their constituents globally, not just at home. All human beings are equal. 
to take care of them. And if you don't know who those people are that are going to run for office, that do match your moral ethical fabric, find someone who does. People all over in your church, mosque, synagogue, school, temple, and vote for them. So we're spending Ma- Mandy Patinkin for president. <laughs> so no, I want to come. I wanna, not I come me, but, but 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 I do this like you do what you do. This is our way of being political. So we are spending so much more of our time thinking about how we mobilise people because, as you say, Mandy, this is something that requires people to take actions in their daily life, be it voting or getting people to run for office or donating. And we often think about the role of empathy in that, getting people to actually see a story, a struggle, yeah. a person, and. When we debate this, there are some conflicting views about it, because some people will argue that, A, empathy is really, really hard when you're talking about somebody who's lived a totally different life to you. And you're sure, you can feel the sympathy for them. You can feel the um, bravery and the uh, you can feel compassion for what they've been through. But actually putting yourself in their shoes can be difficult when uh, their life is so different. And it can involve us almost foisting our stereotypes on them. And you almost conjure up in your mind a stereotype. So that's one critique that I've heard. The other is that sometimes people can almost be overwhelmed through empathy. So they get to a point where they feel exhausted and they almost just want to turn away. And, you know, I see it almost uh, amongst some friends when they see things on the news and they see terrible, uh, terrible events and they almost want to switch off because it's too painful and they just want to bury their head in the sand in something completely different. So I'm just wondering about your view on whether the right way to mobilise people is through empathy, through storytelling, or whether it's got these problematic uh, elements? Well, I'm not just interested in telling a story. I want there to be a moral option, possibility, solution, and I want it turned into action because these people desperate for survival, a sanctuary, and a new beginning— are not interested in stories. They're interested in a home, safety for their children, and education, health care, and peace. And so it's up to us to demand of our elected officials that they attend to this. As, as a great playwright in America, Arthur Miller, said in Death of a Salesman, the mother said to the two children about the father, attention must be paid. And if you don't, know how to relate. Let me just give you a suggestion. Find a friend or a colleague or a neighbor or a cousin and go to nursery school or first grade or any playground and assemble a group of 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 little children and then just say something to them or play a quick little game. But look in their eyes and look in their faces. Those are the same faces all over the world nothing changes. Those children haven't learned to hate. Those children haven't learned to think of others being someone you should be afraid of. And they're children. They're your children. They're my children. They're living, breathing human beings. They're not a foreign, different culture. You know, one of the beautiful things about enemies anywhere, I love it. I I, I work on a, on a music project that I call Bridges with an, a, a Syrian a drummer, Palestinian Israeli violinist, an Israeli cellist, a Presbyterian piano player, a Jewish singer, and there's a conflict at any point, like like the whole Middle East, you know, like a microcosm of the Middle East. And if we have to talk about something because somebody's concerned about anything, 
No one's allowed to talk until the feast is over, meaning you have a whole food table set. You can't bring up any kind of PowerPoint displays or any statistics or any moral ethical arguments you first eat. And then once the meal is over, there's no problems anymore. The Arabic world says once you eat with your enemy, you're no longer enemies. And so it's a great privilege I have to go visit these places, no question. Everybody can't do that. That's why the IRC works hard, as do a number of other NGOs, to show you, to capture stories, to film them, photographs, to, to spend a great deal of time describing the photograph, the individual, the name, the people that we met, what they do, how they do it, how they recover, what they're doing for others, how they're teaching the women uh, who suffered gender-based violence to teach the men to behave differently in their culture because they can no longer uh, be, continue to behave the way they are. And this is happening all over the world, that the men can learn to carry the water. The men can learn to carry the wood. The men can walk two hours to take the children to school. The men can walk two hours to pick them up from school. The men can clean the houses. And all of this is, is it's no different than your own home, you know? And if it isn't different than your home, you better start cleaning up and, and doing your share of the work at home. But it is your family. That's why... When the first time I woke up and I'm doing a fictional story called Homeland of a fictional Syrian refugee camp and the real world is real and it's burning and lives are falling apart and dying and crumbling all around us, I needed to be with them because they were my grandparents. They were my my grandparents, my ancestors, all of those people coming over here. No different. And how, how anybody can close their doors to these people in any nation and not spend every dying breath to improve the vetting process constantly, to work globally to improve every country's vetting process. We have to work together and don't take no for an answer. One of the things that this conversation is getting at is just how do you communicate about these issues? And one of the things that I continuously reflect on goes back to the tension between statistics and stories. And one of the uh, empirical facts that you see out of a lot of the studies is that people just disengage when you start talking about large numbers. Um, mm. it's, it kind of goes back to the old idiom, a, a, de- a single death is a tragedy and a million is a, a statistic, right? Mm. Um, and people respond differently and behave differently. And that's why I actually think it's just so crucial for people to actually access individual stories in a way where the wonky side of me mm. Is like, oh, that's actually the f- like the starting point for yes. people and, and how you have to go into it. So it's, it's one of the things that I think about and grapple with a lot. But I want to pull on one of the th- you know, ways in which you got involved, which was through Homeland. How has your exposure and what you've taken away and learned over the years made you think about what Homeland's role is and how you think about Homeland? <laughs> well, I uh... – Initially, I read a script that I thought was good. I knew the actress was good. I knew the writers were good. I knew the pedigree of everyone involved. And I could tell that it had potential because a television series is a slow onion peel. So Homeland becomes, you can't plan these things, but a global success. And uh, I have... uh, a prominent role in it, and all of a sudden, without even thinking about it, 
it offers me a platform of access to media and the public. And the, then the show in a fictional world is, is mirroring a real Syrian refugee camp in 2015. The real world is falling apart around me. And I only am dying for us to finish finishing our fantasy fictional tale uh, so that I can hold people's hands and comfort them as I hope my ancestors were comforted and welcomed, and I know they were welcomed into our country. And I'm also dying inside as I'm hearing the political rhetoric, you know, gin up fear and hatred toward refugees and and on and these very people that were my family uh, in late 1800s but I the celebrity thing I wanted my children to come with me the first time to Lesbos and I called Ruth Messenger from American Jewish World Service because my wife has brought social conscious behavior into all three boys in our family I'm, I'm one of the boys about that's how <laughs> that's how you behave in this world you mm-hmm. take care of your fellow human beings and we talk about it at the dinner table. We put it into action. We raise money whenever there's a cause that needs attention. You learn these things, and you learn how to behave that way. And as my Buddhist, my Jewish Buddhist brother-in-law, uh, who's a monk. So he's uh, so a good Jewish quality Jewish to have. He's, he's Jewish Buddhist, can you just expand on that? Yeah, he's a, he's a Jew-boo. And, uh, and he's a beautiful human being and a monk um, in a monastery upstate New York. And, and he has, they have a, a, in their tradition a beautiful phrase, which is, our actions are the ground we walk on. Words are cheap. Emotions are cheap. Empathy, in my opinion, is cheap. Actions are potent. And what are actions? Actions are getting people elected who have moral ethical values similar to yours. Actions are making donations to causes and organizations that are doing the hard work on the front line. So that if you can't be there, you're supporting the work by contributing. We're all in violent agreement with each other about this issue. I just wonder about uh, when you think about people who uh, have very different views to, Mm. to, to you, do you feel empathy towards them? Do you do you understand what's in their mind and why they feel very different very differently I towards do. the crisis? I do. They they're frightened. They're frightened, or they're power hungry, or they're greedy. And if they're greedy and power hungry, they're also frightened, or they've been damaged. My wife has an expression that is part of our family culture: "Hurt people, hurt people." And so, one thing I love so much, and I refer to David Miliband, who's the CEO of the International Rescue Committee, as my political rabbi. <laughs> is I read everything he says, everything he writes, and listen to everything he says. Because he teaches me not to speak or approach my fellow human being with shame and blame. He's a diplomat. He talks about diplomacy. And he talks about upping diplomatic efforts on a global basis. And it's a community that has to do that. It's not a single individual effort. And it's not a magic trick either. If you think like, you know, well, you know, how did this, how does this happen? It happens because human beings, men and women, get together in rooms, sometimes just two. And they have an empathy for their fellow human being. And they have to make change. And then they have the ability to talk to large groups of people or small groups in a home. One of the ways in which we are going to make political progress is through those people who have very competing views coming to a compromise and actually moving issues forward rather than this uh, angry clash. And you once talked about Homeland, actually, as teaching the art of listening, which I thought was a fascinating and brilliantly incisive way of describing what was so brilliant about uh, Homeland. And I just wonder, in this world of angry men arguing on Twitter, whether we need a bit more of the art of listening. 
I do think so. I think one of the cancers in the world that's a global cancer is the lost art of listening. And one of the reasons I've loved playing Saul Berenson is what the writers have created is an individual who's quiet, who's been through everything uh, imaginable, and who knows how to listen, and who cares deeply about human beings everywhere on the planet, and also is in a moral ethical war within himself. As I've talked with people in the intelligence community who have been who are usually religious people who are highly moral ethical people and and I just had breakfast the other day with someone who is as high up in the intelligence community as you can get in the United States of America who has become a dear friend and my wife who was uh, uh, and other friends that I have who were left of the left of the left <laughs> you know brought up you know like how people want to you know blame the CIA for for Guatemala Guatemala in 1954, covert election manipulation. Chile, 1970, CIA's failed program to help get Allende elected, which was the opposite of the desired outcome. Iran, 1952-53, CIA enabled the Shah era on behalf of the UK's interests with British Petroleum. So they are teaching the young recruits that these are mistakes the CIA made, that they have to take responsibility for, and that if you don't think in the world we're living in today that the truth isn't going to come out, think again, and that the right thing has to be done by this organization and every intelligence organization in the United States. And what I loved and my wife loved and my other lefty friends loved it, that they were taking responsibility for it. But they also, these guys in the CIA have been working hand in hand with me to try to educate me about the vetting process, telling me that there is absolute, with, with, with absolutely no uh, no ifs, ands, or buts, that we have a process that can bring these people in here safely and know that they're safe and not to worry about. Our vetting process is that good. And, um, and to tell voters that that's not true is, is an absolute falsehood. So what I love about David Miliband, if I can just get back to it, is his need to up the diplomacy. And, and that's on a global basis, so that if you have a situation, let's just say in Uganda, where one individual has been in power for, I think, 35, 36 years, and another individual in South Sudan has been in, or in Sudan, has been in power, and, and for whatever reasons, it's not changing. You know, you can make a list a mile long. It's, it doesn't matter. But what does matter is people are dying. And people are suffering and a conflict isn't disappearing. And those victims are not the cause of the problem. The political leaders are the cause of the problem who can't get their stuff together for whatever reason. And therefore, those who are healthy and those who are strong and those who are in a free area of the world where there isn't a conflict and who have good lives, it is their job and their moral obligation to find the time and effort and energy and use their imagination to come up with options to offer these countries and countries globally to to put sanctions or 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 offers of incentives to help your economy grow if you help these countries why should uh, developing nations be taking the burden for the refugee crisis all over the world and the united states and the uk and the european union is is hardly lifting a finger why, when the Obama administration is here, was 85,000, then he put it up to 110,000 to take in. The Trump administration comes in and brings that number down to 50,000 when, he, when he's inaugurated. Then he brings it down to 45,000. And because of red tape and bans and everything else that's going on, less than, less than 10,000 have been brought in right now. And they expect by the end of the fiscal year 2018, less than 23,000 will be brought in. And that will be less than half of the quota of the Bill's powerful nation in the, in the world. That's just not acceptable. And if it was your 
child and your baby in your arms who needed a home and medical care and an education. You would, you would not stop at anything to acquire that. And it is our job to our fellow human beings globally, or no one will be there when the shit hits the fan in your neighborhood and you need help. Uh, I want to I pick up on one thing, which is in acting, you're extremely well known for diving deep into roles. And I obviously with Salt Berenson and Homeland, you are talking with the CIA. You're learning that way. How did you learn about the refugee crisis? How did you dive into it? How can people who don't have the type of access you're talking about learn? What's the type of immersion you do? Well, I have a cell phone. So I went to Berlin to shoot the fifth season of Homeland. And every day I was reading about the crisis of 125,000 125, human beings in the beginning of the crisis. We're trying to get across the Balkan route to Germany for sanctuary. And then that number grew and grew and grew and grew. And, uh, and I'm a human being. So, and I saw in their faces and in all the photographs that we all saw all over the world, my family. Mm-hmm. There's no one that can't relate to this. And my, I'm in the imagination business, okay? And so when I think about the Holocaust, it's not five guys or six guys that come up with a plan to annihilate a population. It's, it's a whole country that has to put it into action. It's populations that put it into action. And if you go to Nuremberg and they use the excuse, well, I was just taking orders. Sorry, Charlie. Not a good enough answer for me. And people are saying that same answer right now to this day about other things. And so it takes constant vigilance on all our parts. And, you know, being an actor, when I went to acting school, the word act, A-C-T, is the beginning of the word actor or actress. And my mentor, Gerald Friedman, I was doing a classical play called Duchess of Malfi, and William Hurt, the actor who I knew was Bill Hurt, but you know, he called himself William, and he was a dear friend and taught me a lot about digging deeper into the my soul and his soul to represent the human condition. And he was trying to teach me an action, what an action was. And an action, he wanted me to get it down to the simplest word, a simple sentence. Could I get it down to a simple single sentence? And he, and he always believed that if you pull that arrow back, whether you're playing a part or writing a story or making a film or a piece of music, that the, that the core action that you as the creator or the actor or the musician or the painter or, or want, want to get across, when you pull that arrow, that it goes right through the center of the heart of it all. And, and what is that action? Can you get it down to one word? I would say for me that one word at the end of my life, if on my tombstone, I'd have to put uh, – I'd have to put three words in front of it, in front of the one word. He tried two, and the one word is connect, connect, connect. I said to Rob Reiner, uh, when I'm not a writer, and after we'd made The Princess Bride, I tried to write something, and it was all over the place. And, and I couldn't figure out how to do what my teacher said. Can you put it in one sentence, one simple sentence, what the story's about? I said, well, Rob, how would you put the Princess Bride in a single sentence, for God's sake? It's got so many stories going on. And he didn't hesitate. He said, that's simple. Little boy's sick in Evanston, and Grandpa comes over to tell him the most important thing in life is true love. (laughs) 
Mandy, when, Mandy, when I saw you two years ago, you came to see a bunch of IRC colleagues and you told uh, the stories of, of what you'd seen in, in Greece. And I remember going into that meeting feeling uh, mixed feelings. One, I'm a massive Homeland fan, so I was super excited. But I also felt slightly sceptical about celebrities coming to talk to us and what are they going to know? Mm. And, um, and I'm a cynical British person at heart. Mm. And then at the end of your speech... I and a bunch of my colleagues were so moved, so emotional, so grateful. And it actually made me think quite a lot about a few things. One, it made me think, as Grant said earlier, Mandy Patankin should run for president. <laughs> um, but the other thing it made me reflect on was I, I used to be a speechwriter. I used to be speechwriter for David Miliband. And it made me really reflect on how inadequate my writing was and and how we think about doing politics particularly by elites, where almost there's a premium on being respectable, credible, authoritative. And it's almost, it takes a bravery to bear your soul as a politician because that can be quite uh, punished by the media. And I'm just interested in how far you're prepared to go in this journey to to try and connect, as you put it, and mobilise. Are you prepared to um, be even more active politically than you are now? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Look, I've been around quite a while by critics in the theater or film or any area of the arts or by uh, political critics now whenever I do something uh, as an activist. And, you know, here's another Hollywood actor coming to tell us what to do. How dare they? Uh, You you, you can – sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me like we said when we were kids. Uh, Nothing frightens me. When I'm dealing with – Lending my voice to the most vulnerable human beings on this planet, having been blessed with such a wonderful life and family, children, the privilege to live in this country at its worst, you can't shake me or scare me. No one can. You can't threaten me. And it's a sad game that people play. But you just need to be yourself. Did I tell you the E.E. E. Cummings poem? Have I shared that with you today? No. My wife gave it to me years ago. I was doing, I was 25, 6, 7, somewhere in there, uh, doing a play called Evita. It was one of the first things I did that was on a bigger stage. You were a, Che Guevara, right? I was right? Che Guevara, as opposed to the, the, the work that didn't get seen that much at the public theater off-Broadway. And I did this thing, and I didn't know why people were paying attention to this more than what we were doing off-Broadway that I thought was, you know, like the bee's knees. But it got all this attention, and um, and then everybody started saying, you were going to win an award, you were going to win an award. And we had a whole year before the award ceremony would come. And it would drive me crazy. Why, why, I wish people, I would say to my wife, I wish people would stop telling me I'm going to win an award. I just want to do the job. Make it nuts, you know. What if, now, what if I don't win an award? Am I worthless? You know, leave me alone, leave me alone. And but they're constantly. And then I started making a joke out of it. I said, right, right, right. If I win an award, uh, then I'll have a medal, and I'll have courage, like the lion in the Wizard of Oz, right? And uh, and you know, so that's how I dealt with it. Then the award ceremony comes finally at the end of the year, and the category comes up, and uh, the person's on stage opening, getting ready to open the envelope, and she's saying the names in the category that I'm in. I'm nominated, and my wife slips a little metal uh, touchstone into my hand uh, that is uh, right in my hand right now. That you're taking out of your wallet. It's currently in your hand. That's it. Okay? It's a little piece of silver, uh, and we have since made one for each of my sons and my wife. 
And on the front of it, she wrote in her inevitable wisdom, and I would simply also say, listen to the women in your lives, wherever you are. <laughs> and my wife gave me this medal years ago. And on one side, it says, a medal for the lion, courage and love, always Catherine. This is before the category whether I knew I won or lost so that I'd have my medal, even if I didn't get, even if I didn't win the award. And on the other side is a mantra for our family. And I offer it to everyone, a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. And pick up all these touchstones and phrases from the people who matter that you meet as you go along the road because they make up what's called your life. Mandy Patankin, thank you so much for being with us and being on Displaced. Thank, thank you. you so much, Mandy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kerwa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.